0: Sometimes people ask me, you know, how do you think you're preaching? I always think it goes well. That's just because I love what I'm doing. Don't tell me if that's different. I don't want to know. But the parables of Jesus are just so rich. They're they're amazingly simple, and yet we can spend a lifetime trying to plumb the depths of what they mean. And so my goal has been to utilize some of the parables of Jesus, not only to see the, the kingdom principles that are contained in these parables but to dig into how they inform our walk with the Lord, how they teach us how to know Him and and serve Him better. And so we've been using the metaphor of a blooming plant or a flower, and it's my hope that you will return home refreshed and eager to blossom and to bloom. And so just to kind of wrap up our time this weekend, so far we've looked at blossoming with generous sunshine That is truly seeking to know Christ at a deeper level to grow in the knowledge of Him. We've looked at blossoming with lovely fragrance that humility and thankfulness should be the hallmark of a growing and maturing believer in Christ. We've looked at blossoming with plenty of water that the, the Word of God is sufficient to give life to your souls, to water your heart with God's goodness and His delights. And then we looked last night at blossoming with beautiful color. The servant heart of one who's eagerly awaiting the Lord's coming, while serving and yet looking to heaven. And so, this morning to finish up our time, I want to examine blossoming with healthy leaves. Blossoming with healthy leaves. Now, the leaves of a flower are not the most noticeable feature. They're sort of the the background. They're sort of the decoration. Our eye is drawn to the flower. But the leaves provide a function which keeps the entire flower, the entire plant healthy and vital and, and looking good. Generally speaking, leaves provide food and air to help a plant stay healthy and grow. And specifically, leaves have three major functions, and I'm going to return back to these in a bit. First of all, through photosynthesis, leaves turn light energy into food. And so there's, there's food that's brought. The second thing leaves do is that through the pores, the 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 leaves breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. And the third thing leaves do is they release excess water, sort of like we sweat. Now, I know you don't sweat and you don't perspire. You occasionally glisten because you're ladies. I understand that. But guys sweat. That's what we do. And leaves do that as well. The healthy leaves of a blossoming Christian, we're going to identify this right now as the heartfelt prayers of petition. And very often we'll speak of prayers of thankfulness and prayers of gratitude, prayers of praise. But I want to speak to you specifically about prayers of petition. When you're asking the Lord for help, for relief, for blessing, for mercy, there's a specific type of petition that we're going to look at this morning. And then we'll broadly generalize it a little bit more. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And in Luke 18, we're going to examine the parable of the persistent widow. And we'll divide this into two very easy to digest portions, as easy as they come. In fact, similar to a previous message, we're just going to look at the parable and the point. That's it. Here's the parable. Verse 1 of chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. This is just simply continuing the conversation that Jesus is having There isn't any indication of time passing since the previous scene, so it seems most reasonable to assume he's speaking to the same audience. So look back with me at chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But then in verse 22, And he said to the disciples... The days are coming when you will desire, desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so then Jesus proceeds to give vital information about the coming kingdom, about the end of the age, and so he's still speaking to the disciples. Now, in the, in the Gospels, sometimes the disciples refer to the twelve, and sometimes the disciples refer to the twelve, plus everyone else who wants to hear what he has to say. We don't know which one this is, but suffice it to say that he's speaking to those who want to hear him. He's speaking to those who want to learn, and so he offers an encouragement that believers in Christ should be diligent and heartened and invigorated in prayer while waiting for the consummation of all things, that we're not to lose heart. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, this is very contrary to how a Jew thought about prayer. When Jesus says that they ought always to pray, how they viewed prayer was that we shouldn't weary God. We shouldn't get him tired of hearing the sound of our voice. And so, what they modeled their prayer after was Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel would pray three times a day. And so, a Jew would say, "I, I want to pray for things, but I'm not going to, I don't want God to get tired of hearing my voice. I don't want God to roll his eyes every time I say, Our Father. I don't want that to happen. And so, a Jew would say, What do you mean we ought always to pray? I've been taught to limit my times of prayer so that I don't make God tired of me. And so this is very refreshing for us. And if you find as much mystery in parables as I do, this is so refreshing because in verse 1, we get from Luke what the parable means before we even get to it. It's so nice. It's, it's like, And I saved this for last so that you didn't have to use your brains because Luke tells you what it's about right up front. So there's two main characters in this parable. There is an unrighteous judge, and there is a persistent widow. So let's see what they have to say. Jesus said, this is verse 2, He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So the unrighteous judge, I'm just going to tell you up front, is representative of God. Now, obviously, Jesus is not likening God to an unrighteous judge of any kind. This is just a human, relatable character that Jesus is using that everyone would understand. And probably when he said, in a certain city there was an unrighteous judge, I wouldn't be surprised if the audience supplied a name in their mind. Yeah, like old Ephraim down the street. They, they understood what an right, unrighteous judge was about. This judge doesn't fear God. He may believe in God, but if he does, his belief has no impact on his life, on his work at all. He's a practical atheist in that what God thinks has no bearing on his actions at all. He doesn't respect man either. This is a Greek word which means he has no regard for humanity. He's not moved by compassion situations. He's not connecting with people at a human level. And so there would be really a deadness to his soul. There's, there's no vertical relationship. There's no horizontal relationship. He's just a man who shows up to work and does his job. He has a vital relationship with three people, me, myself, and I, and that's it. He's the opposite, in fact, of what the believer in Christ is called to be. In 2 Corinthians 8.21, we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, that's vertical, but also in man's sight, that is horizontal, And so there's the unrighteous judge. But then you have the widow. And you have the widow presented really as the ultimate cultural symbol of helplessness. She has no money to bribe the judge. She has no influence. She has no position. She doesn't have a man. She doesn't have a protector to put pressure on the judge. She had one thing going for her. And all that was, was that she knew she was in the right. That's all she had. And it's important to note that she didn't ask for vengeance, she asked for justice. She's not trying to hire a hitman, she's trying to get the judge to do what's right. We're not told what her complaint was or what her adversary had done to her or how she'd been taken advantage of, but we are told what the widow did do. She kept coming to him. This is the type of verb that indicates she did it over and over and over and over again. And eventually the judge gave in. But it was purely and only to get her off his back. That was the only reason. Verse 4 For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So this widow can't appeal to the judge on the basis of doing what's right for the sake of humanity. She can't appeal to the judge for doing what's right in the eyes of God because he doesn't care about either of those things. So uh, he's like uh, the, the classic atheist who might not be moved in compassion for humanity, but there are atheists who are moved in compassion for humanity, but he's not even in that category. He's just completely unmoved. He's not having a heart of any kind. He's controlled only by his own ideas, his own inclinations. The the widow can't bribe him. She can't bully him, but she could bother him. That's what she did have. In verse 5, the word bother is sometimes translated toil or work, meaning that she's going to make him work for this. If he's going to keep saying no, she's going to make him regret it day after day after day. And so she put it in her mind to become a nightmare to this judge. And we can imagine that day after day he would see her coming and he looks out the window, oh, here she comes again. And so she just decides to keep going. Well, finally, he determined to give her what she asked for, quote, so that she will not beat me down. This is a word that literally means to give me a black eye. He's tired of just being punched in the eye emotionally because she is annoying him. Now, this word beat me down. It came to mean to annoy somebody to the point where they're worn out. And that is what she's doing here. It is not biblical for a woman to nag her husband. There is no admonition against nagging a judge. And so that's what she's doing. She's just going to show up and, and say, I'm going to be here till the day you die or until you give me justice. One of the two. So the widow finally walks away victorious. The judge has given in and gotten her off his back. Now, the characters here, they're they're obvious, as Luke has already made it clear in verse 1 what the parable is about. The unrighteous judge represents God, and I'll explain that in a moment. And the helpless widow represents us as believers in Christ, those who are are beseeching the Lord. So that's the parable, but what's the point? Well, the lesson is about persistence in prayer. Persistence. So why does Jesus use an unrighteous judge who is who's selfish and uncaring as the representative of God. Well, it's not so much that the unrighteous judge represents God, but he represents a contrast to God. Now, what do we mean by that? What I mean is is that the unrighteous judge is the least likely person to help the widow. And so the point of the whole parable is that if a wicked man will sometimes do good, even from bad motives, how much more will God always do good from love? If a wicked man will sometimes do good, even from bad motives, how much more will God always do good from love, do what's right from love? And now Jesus, He just openly explains the meaning of the parable. And it, generally speaking, is about persistence in prayer, but it has a specific overtone to it, as we'll see here in a moment. In Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now he's speaking of the prayers of the elect, specifically to prayers of vindication, prayers for justice. And that's what the widow had asked for. And he describes the prayers of the saints as happening day and night. He's illustrating persistence, a continuing in prayer. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Will he delay long over them? Well, the implied answer is no. And in fact, verse 8 at the beginning says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now we'll return to the speedy justice of God in a moment. But the question that really comes to mind here is, what kind of prayers is Jesus talking about? These prayers for justice, these prayers for vindication. Well, we need to understand the context to to really grasp what he's saying here. Look what Jesus has just been teaching them. Go back to verse 22 again of chapter 17. He's giving instruction about the coming kingdom of God. Remember, the parables are almost exclusively about the kingdom. And he tells them that true believers will experience longing for Christ to return. Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, as we'll see in a moment, there is certainly a general desire, a general longing by any believer in Christ. But this specifically is applied to tribulation saints, to those who are saved after the removal of the church from the earth. And now, Antichrist has risen to power. He's rounding up those who refuse to take his mark. He's persecuting them. He's murdering them wholesale. And the believers now that are on earth are longing to see the coming of Christ, to give them relief. And that time, like today, there will be false messiahs. There will be many who claim to speak for God, many who claim to have the voice of God, who claim to be God's voice to the current generation. And so Jesus tells us what to do. Verse 23, And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Why does he say this? Well, the next thing he's going to tell us is that the coming of Christ isn't going to be a secret event, one which people have to guess at. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ has already come, but he came invisibly. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Look what Jesus says in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day, now the prophet Daniel speaking of the seven day seven year period rather before Christ returns, he gives us some information about timing Antichrist will have set himself up as one to be worshipped after having broken covenant with his, with Israel, a treaty in which he restored Old Testament sacrifices, but then he breaks that covenant, and Daniel tells the time frame Daniel twelve verse eleven. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, meaning there will be three and a half years. But Revelation 11 and 12 says that the second half of the seven years is 1,260 days. So what's the difference? Well, there's a 30 day difference. Well, Jesus here in this text just said that the coming of the son of man will be obvious He did not say it would be instantaneous. It will be like a massive storm coming closer and closer and closer, apparently over a period of about a month. Now, how do we confirm this from Scripture? Well, even the unbelievers confirm this from Scripture. The unbelievers on earth will have time to dread the coming of Christ, knowing that it's Christ, and knowing what's about to happen to them. How do we know this? Revelation 6, beginning in verse 15 Says Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They have time to dread. And so the coming of Christ will be obvious. It will not necessarily be instantaneous. But then the prophet Daniel continues, Daniel 12, verse 12, Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. What's with all the math in Daniel, by the way? Well, there's another 45 days now after Christ's return. What's happening then? Well, the Lord will have executed death and destruction on the armies that are arrayed against Him around Jerusalem on the day of His return. Zechariah 14 says this, but now there's cleanup to be done. And specifically, there is judgment to be rendered of those who survived the Great Tribulation. The horrific judgments of God that that fell on the earth during this time is described in Revelation 6 and following. Many had worshipped Antichrist and persecuted the Tribulation saints, and now there is a day of reckoning for those who survive. But right here in Luke 17, all of a sudden, Jesus interrupts himself. Before that great day of reckoning, before that day of judgment for mankind who've survived the great tribulation, there would be a different day of reckoning, one in which Jesus Himself would take the wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe in Him. Look with me at verse 25 of chapter 17. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so He makes certain to understand that that the kingdom of God is not coming now. Christ must die first. He must He must pay for the sins of mankind. But then he gets back to the moment right before he'll return and he gives two illustrations from really the the highlight moments of God's judgment in the Old Testament, if you want to call it that, his judgment against sin. Verses 26 and 27, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The, the whole world thought they could get away with rejecting God, and God slaughtered them. And then the second great moment of judgment in, in the Old Testament, verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Sodom, as you remember, thought it could get away with sexual immorality, the the heinous sin of homosexuality, the violent sexual rage and selfishness which characterized that whole city. But like the flood of Noah and like the destruction of Sodom, verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed that judgment will come suddenly and without warning. So Jesus warns that you had better not love the world. You'd better love him instead. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In other words, do not love the world. Don't hang on to the world. You must hang on to Christ. In verse 32, remember Lot's wife. At the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife decided to take her chances. And we studied this a number of months ago that Scripture says that she looked back. The better Hebrew translation is that she went back. The the reason she was destroyed along with all those in Sodom is because she couldn't live without the city. And she left her family um, for that city and she was destroyed. And so Jesus warns, as he did so many times in verse 33, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That you must be crucified with Christ. You must be identified with him in his death, in his suffering. You must acknowledge that you deserve death. You deserve damnation in order to be found with him. And here is the swiftness of the judgment of all who are still on earth who had rejected Christ. Jesus gives a picture of the rounding up of all the rebels Verse 34, I tell you in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. This is not speaking of the rapture of the church. That is a misnomer. This is speaking of the rounding up of the unsaved who have lived through the great tribulation for judgment. What judgment is that? It is the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25. And so they're being rounded up. That's what's happening in that 45-day period after the return of Christ. Now, we insert right here at that moment, Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from another, as another shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left... Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Verse forty-one. Then we will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Now, you may not have to live through the great tribulation. In fact, I would strongly assert that the New Testament teaches that you will not live through the great tribulation. The the Church of Jesus Christ of this age will be with the Lord already. But we still live with the same injustice and the same oppression that Jesus described. Verse 22 of chapter 17, he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. What do you have to live with? Well, the world hates you and hates the fact that you follow Christ. I mean, we, we sequester ourselves here in this little room knowing that outside these four walls, nobody thinks what we're doing matters. In fact, they probably think it's weird. I have to wonder what those guys next door think of us singing hymns. They're probably putting their ear to the wall going, what's going on over there? That's weird. Because we don't belong. And if you think that the world doesn't hate you, then just go proclaim Christ on the street corner and see what happens. They're not, you're not going to gather crowds saying, thank you, Jesus, for this message You're going to get hit by things. The world continues to persecute and murder followers of Christ. Now, you may think that that's not happening in America, but persecution is heating up. And historically, it always leads, it starts first in the media, then it leads to changing of laws, then it leads to imprisonment, then it leads to executions. That has always been history. Where are we right now? We're in the changing of laws state. That's where we are the world sickens you with its worship of sexual immorality 20 years ago if you said i'm a homosexual you might get beat up today if you say it you'll be put at the front of a parade and homosexuality homosexuals are not our enemy they are our, our mission field but today you open your mouth against that sin and you're you're cast out and it will be just a very short period of time before legal ramifications are happening it's already happening the world attempts to divide people along so-called racial lines when, when the Bible clearly teaches there is one race, the human race. By the way, the most racist people on earth are the ones who decry racism. Always remember that. There is one race. It is the human race. We all happen to be, have different levels of coloring to us, just like flowers. But there's one race. It is the human race. The, the world hates everything you stand for from Scripture. Everything. The world hates the Scriptures. Try bringing your Bible. I mean, I've been carrying my Bible around here, and I've had three different people say, is that a Bible? And, and one of them tried to convert me to, to become a Jehovah's Witness, and I <laughs> said, you know, I don't think that's going to happen here. And she said, you should go to this website, jw.org. And I said, you know, I've been there. And, uh, and she said, we should read about suffering there. And I said, well, I've written a book about suffering. Let me give you a, <laughs> the name of it. But you just carry your Bible around. Go, go to downtown Bakersfield. Carry your Bible around. People are going to look at you weird Are they going to come up to you and say, I have a word from God from you. They're just weird stuff's going to happen. The, the world hates, hates the precious lives that the Lord has placed in the wombs of women. These women who supposedly defend women's rights certainly will do it as long as the woman isn't a baby. As soon as the woman is a baby woman, then they'll, they'll kill it. They'll kill her how that day of judgment will be for them. And not only are they encouraged to personal freedom, supposedly, in murdering babies, but they're encouraged to be funded. And we have to pay taxes that may go towards that. So all all you have to do is get on a good news app or or a newspaper, if you still use one of those, and see that everything that you cherish, the world hates. You want to know a good way to understand a Christian worldview look at what unbelievers hate, and that's probably something that the Lord cherishes. And if you want to know what the Lord hates, look at what the world cherishes. He goes back and forth. Some of them are used by Satan to put forward a platform of wickedness. This is not a political platform. This is a spiritual platform disguised as politics. And it only gets worse until Christ returns. So because of that, times like this, and Sunday morning worship and Sunday evening worship and our small groups and, and the times we gather together, this is, this is precious to us. We, we cherish this time. The widow who is appealing to the judge for justice, Jesus is using that picture to encourage the saints that think they can't wait one more hour for the return of Christ and the retribution of all who have rejected him. All of the, the disgusting things happening in New York and, and Virginia concerning the, the newly born babies that aren't wanted and so can legally be killed on the table or let to die. That just makes me say, Lord Jesus, return now. Don't let one more die, don't let one more happen. Now, you might say, well, I don't particularly feel the urge to cry out day and night. Well, you might feel differently if you were in this situation. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 5, And the beast, that is Antichrist, was given the mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That's the scene on earth. What's the scene in heaven at the same time? Revelation 6, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And Jesus says, He will give justice to them speedily. Then why is this a lesson about persistence in prayer? Well, very simply because Christ's definition of speedily is not our definition of speedily. Compared to the first hundred billion years that we're with the Lord in paradise, waiting a few centuries for justice is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. I had a conversation once with an older Chinese pastor, and we were having a conversation about patience in ministry. And he said, our culture is 4,000 years old. Waiting another year makes no difference to me. What a great perspective to have. Here's God's perspective. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And what's the reason Peter's saying this? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Oh, there we go. Why is the Lord still waiting to bring justice to the earth so that all of the elect can be saved? How many of you were saved after 1980? Put it that way. After 1980. Aren't you glad Christ didn't return in 1979? Because now you're here. And so he is is patient. He's patient. So here's another question that Christ offers back in chapter 18, the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In Greek, this reads, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Will he find the faithful believers in Christ? Will they still be there crying out day and night? Will they still be in prayer? Will there still be saints on their knees crying out for justice? Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether the answer to that question is yes or no, but it's missing the entire point. Jesus is asking this question to challenge the listener to persistent prayer, to make sure that the answer is yes. Now, since this is primarily a lesson about persistent prayer that's tenacious, even in the midst of persecution and death, that the saints are to keep crying out for justice, this raises a very high bar of expectation. That is the expectation to believe the Lord when we ask for anything that is His will. Far from this being something to make us hopeless, this should fill you with excitement and joy. And here's where this comes down to our world, our time, our moment, right here at this time. Do you understand the prayers that Jesus has just promised to answer? He's promised to answer prayers for justice for the entire world, if you will pray them. How much more should we expect the Lord to graciously respond when we pray about little teeny tiny things like disease broken relationships, unexpected hardships. In other words, if the Lord has said, be persistent when praying for worldwide justice, then persistently praying about your little needs is easy. That's a piece of cake. Jesus said something marvelous to his disciples in John 16, 24. It was a challenge. It was an invitation. He said, Until now you have, not asked, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Now, he's not saying that they're not prayerful. It's just that when you have Jesus right next to you, your prayer life is probably going to suffer because all you have to do is ask him. And so he's saying, you haven't asked the Father anything in my name because he's standing right there. All they have to do is ask him. But he says, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The word ask is an imperative. It's a command. Ask me for something. I dare you, do it. So Jesus is saying, ask, ask the Father for that which you know will be pleasing to me. Ask for that which would bring glory to God. That is the answer, by the way, to the question, how do I pray in God's will? Well, pray for that which you know would bring him glory. And appeal to him on that basis. Lord, I believe this would bring you great glory, and I'm appealing to you on that basis. I believe this would be pleasing to Christ. When we pray in the name of Jesus, that's not a magical formula. That's saying, I believe this would please my Lord, and I pray on his behalf. That's a weighty responsibility, so it means being thoughtful in prayer. Well, now I want to come back to the function of the leaves. Because the function of the leaves is exactly what prayers of petition do for your soul. I said there were three major functions of leaves. We'll turn these into three principles of prayers of petition. The first thing leaves do through photosynthesis, they turn light energy into food. So here's our first principle. Prayers of petition give food to your soul. Prayers of petition give food to your soul. And I am not putting down prayers of praise, prayers of thanksgiving, or any other types of prayer but I'm speaking specifically of prayers of petition because you've connected at a deep level with the Lord. What's the difference between a shallow and a deep relationship? The difference is vulnerability, right? Opening yourself up, being vulnerable, making yourself weak before another and not just presenting the strongest parts of yourself. A prayer of petition presents your weakness to the Lord. Uh, The, 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 wonderful psalms given by King David. How many times does he say, How long, O Lord? And why, O Lord? And what are you doing, O Lord? And what in the name of heaven is going on, O Lord? He just says this over and over again. He's very vulnerable to the Lord. He's very real. Psalm 63, 5 and 6 has this picture of food for the soul. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What what is he meditating on? What is he remembering? The very next verse tells us, for you have been my help. What he's meditating on are all the answers to prayer, all the things the Lord has done. And he says, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Oh, what a picture of being protected. I've asked for these 500 things and you've done them all. So prayers of petition give food to your soul. The second thing leaves do through the pores, they breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. Now you know from science class that that's the opposite of what human beings do. We breathe out carbon dioxide and breathe in oxygen. So there's a a wonderful balance there. The plants provide what we need and we provide what they need. But the plant is very much breathing as we are. So here's our second principle. Prayers of petition filter spiritual stagnation into spiritual vitality. Prayers of petition filter spiritual stagnation into spiritual vitality. In other words, it turns carbon dioxide into oxygen. If you sense a spiritual dryness, it may be that spiritually speaking you're trying to breathe carbon dioxide. You feel as though your soul is in a desert. Well, spend time in petition before the Lord because it turns stagnant air to fresh air. One more thing that leaves do leaves release excess water. They release excess water. So here's our third principle, prayers of petition release anxiety into the hands of the Lord. Prayers of petition release anxiety into the prayers of the, into the hands of the Lord. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is in Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 32. It's the story of Jacob, and Jacob is about to face his brother Esau and he's terrified. So what does the Lord do? The Lord comes to Jacob in person, and the weirdest thing in the world, and he wrestles with him. He wrestles with him. And in God's sovereign plan, he allows Jacob to pin him. How odd is that? And the Lord says, let me go. And this was the moment that the Lord was aiming for. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's what the Lord was aiming for. Now, the Lord had already zapped Jacob's hip such that he was going to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. But when Jacob walked away, he had two things with him. He had a limp and he had perfect peace because he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And in fact, it's at that meeting that we hear the name of God's chosen nation for the very first time in all of the Bible. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You know what Israel means? It means wrestling with God. Wrestling with God. So wrestle with the Lord in prayer like a father wrestles with a child. And yes, you may walk away with a limp, but you may walk away also breathing easier and less anxious. I really, really think there are few things more exciting in our Christian life than coming to the Lord with a list of petitions, praying that His will be done, but then asking for ridiculous things, asking for unedited things, for big and mighty things. Don't, don't pray, well, Lord, you know, you probably won't do this, but if you would, would you kind of do this? No, pray the big stuff. Let Him be the one to downgrade your prayers. Let him be the one when you say, I would like a brand new Camaro to say, no, a Volkswagen will be just fine. <laughs> and that's okay. One of the things I resent about the prosperity gospel is that they have stolen the idea of asking God for things. You're his children. You are his daughters. Ask. You, do, you, you, don't, you can't flutter your eyelashes at him, but you can say, I'm your girl. You died for me. What will Jesus do? He challenged you. Until now you've you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. I want to give you two things to think about and then a final kind of exhortation. The first thing to think about as an example, as we've started our joyful generosity uh, building campaign, one of my prayers was that the Lord would move our church to begin praying more for specific areas of their life and specifically for financial provision. And since I've been praying those prayers and our elders have as well, I just this morning heard my 10th story from a church member saying, you're not going to believe what the Lord has done financially in our life, something we never expected. Number 10 this morning, and I expect to hear more. And so ask and believe. The second thing is I, I want to I want to challenge you to the idea of times of prayer. And and these won't happen every day. And You might even need to schedule them. I want to challenge you to the idea of times of prayer or petition until you sense release, until you sense relief. Now, that may sound a little bit emotional. And the reason is, is because it's emotional. You need to have times of prayer where you do what Jacob did. And you say, I am not going to let go until I feel I can. Now, maybe you need to prepare by taking a list with you into prayer. You need to prepare by having an open time frame. You need to prepare by not having your phone with you. You need to prepare by being someplace where nobody's going to interrupt you. But you let the Lord know, I'm going to pray literally about every single thing in my life, everything I can think of. And I promise you, ladies, there will be a moment in prayer where you just sense that you've said all that needs to be said. And you will walk away lighter than air. That is not... an instant emotional response that is working very hard in prayer that is travailing in prayer D.A. Carson is famous for saying that you should pray until you're praying you ever pray sometimes and you think your prayers are hitting the wall or you prayed for three minutes and you don't even remember that you did well these are prayers that you'll never forget so I want to exhort you to to make time to do that that's not every day but to bring your petitions bring page after page after page after page of petition and bring them all to the Lord in detail Very, very important. If the Lord can bring justice to the whole world at the end of redemptive history because of your persistent prayer, do you think he can't handle depression and anxiety or health concerns or relational hurts and pains, a marriage that isn't what you wish it was, a child that isn't what you wish he was? Somebody asked me once, how many children should I have? And I said, you should have as many as you can because they're not all going to turn out very good. It's just the truth. That's going to keep going, isn't it? Should that not be on the recording? You know what children? You know what children do for you? Our, our four children are as different as night and day. There are no two that are even anywhere near alike. And so our prayers for them are so different. They're so unique, and they make us cry out to the Lord. I think that if Jesus said, "Pray for justice on the whole earth." and he says he'll answer that prayer, then he will also answer the little prayers that we have. I have one exhortation for you. This year, and it's still just now March, just now March, I would exhort you to keep a journal, a prayer journal, and put the big and the mighty things in there, put the ridiculous prayer requests in there, wrestle with the Lord in prayer. Put the little tiny things in there, and it's really simple. You have two columns, one with your prayer requests and the date you made it, and one for the answers. And sometimes they will be blank because the answer won't come this year or next year, and maybe not in this lifetime, but the answer will come. But you'll have enough on the answer column filled in to encourage your heart. If you have never done this, it's glorious. It is a, a wonderful experience. Do that this year. And see if at the end of the year you don't have page after page after page to thank the Lord for. So this year, give him the big and the mighty and the ridiculous prayer requests. And I believe that you'll blossom with vitality and life and strength as your leaves are now extended out to breathe in the Lord's goodness. At the end of every year, our family has a tradition. We've done this for about 26 years now, if I'm counting right. And our tradition is to, at the end of the year, thank the Lord for everything we can think of that he did that year. That usually takes us a couple of hours. We have all of our family bring a list, and we thank the Lord, and then we turn around and we ask the Lord for everything we can think of for the coming year, and then that provides the basis for our thankfulness the end of that year. And we do this year after year. I would encourage you to do the same in your life and in your family's life, because the Lord will answer. Let me pray for you. Our Father, we give you thanks for these precious ladies. How you must love them. To have come down, sent your Son to step out of heaven into the filth and the mire of this earth to save these who are here. To step out of the glory of heaven to live in a small mud house instead of being identified as the creator of the universe to now be a young carpenter instead of creating trees to now be crucified on one all so that these who are here could know you and could fellowship with you and be in right reconciled relationship with you with their sins paid for and right before a holy God all eternity and I am so thankful and I know that these ladies are thankful and Lord I would pray for one or two who may even be here who may be questioning her salvation I pray that this would be the day that she would repent and come to faith in Christ and receive that free gift of salvation such that he would challenge her asking you will receive that your joy may be made full thank you for this time that we've had Lord I pray that these ladies would truly blossom as full believers in Christ who are mature and who are soaking in your word and praying your word and living your word. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.